Hello, my name is Sammy George London, and welcome to Comics for the Apocalypse. Today's return guest is comic book legend Pat Mills, where I ask him about his recent projects including Kiss My Axe and his recent reads as well. But before we get into it, I'd like to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, the Comic Scene Comic Club. Available from just £5 a month or £30 a year, you can get monthly issues of the History of Comics, Shift, Brawler and specials of Pat Mills' own Space Warp. To find out more and subscribe to the Comic Club, visit comicscene.org. And on a side note, if you enjoy the show today, please, please, please leave a review for us on iTunes or whichever podcast service you use, as not only will it let me know that you liked it, but believe that it helps make other people aware of the show as well. And uh, we're nine review, uh, we're at nine reviews on iTunes, and getting a tenth would be really good. Anyway, uh, without further ado, on with the show. Hello, Pat Mills. How's it going? It's going fine, Sam. Good morning. Yeah, very good morning. It's uh, it's blue skies where I am. How about you? Uh, it's blue skies here in Spain, but we're up in the mountains oh, and it's extremely cold. I'm actually wearing old, many, many layers of clothing here at the moment. But, uh, <laughs> That's funny. Ah, there you go. I, I don't expect anyone to be sympathetic because, <laughs> as I say, normally it's, it's quite idyllic here. But uh, this particular yeah. day, I think there's some kind of cold spell uh, you know, cold front coming uh, from somewhere, and uh, yeah, it's yeah. absolutely freezing. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful! Fantastic. Um, well, uh, it's it's a pleasure to have you back on the show, um, and uh, yeah, I guess you. My usual question is, what do you do in the world of comics? But you're Pat Mills. So um, everybody knows who Pamela's is, so we don't really need to go into that. Um, but but uh, my, my follow-up question is, 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 where can people find you online, Pat, if, if they're not following you already? <laughs> oh, right. Um, well, um, uh, millsverse.com uh, uh, would cover um, uh, a, a lot of my uh, books, particularly uh, things like... Uh, and obviously on Amazon as well, you know, the, the so there's things like uh, Kiss My Axe, uh, Be Pure, Be Vigilant, Behave, a um, uh, couple of novels. And um, and of course, also, there's there's a whole raft of uh, other material. Um, 2000 AD material would would be on Amazon dot co. Um, and this French material and so on. I, I, it's a bit scary when I go back over the list and think, oh, my God. Uh, uh, some years ago, uh, um, uh, a 2000 AD PR guy, and this was quite a few years ago, he said, uh, you've written all that. Why aren't you dead? Which is a little... Um, yeah, a little disheartening, but um, yeah, anyway, there you go. Well, I'm sure that's way off. And uh, yeah, no, you have an absolutely tremendous uh, back catalogue. So um, everybody go go delve into that via Millsverse. Um, and then also, uh, you know, you're, you're on Twitter, Pat Mills Comics. Um, and uh, yeah, all of those links are in the show notes, folks. So go click through, uh, follow Pat. 
um and also uh, go check out the millsverse as well um now um you mentioned in there um one of your most recent publications and that's kiss my axe um and uh i guess where to start with this um it, it it's a culmination of 40 years of an epic story um and i guess my my first question would be uh why now <laughs> um well i i think it comes down to the fact that uh uh the saga has actually come to an end um in other words it's uh um it's as i explain in the book it's uh slaying the secret history uh kiss my axe which is of course uh slain's um uh one of his favorite expressions <laughs> and in the um in the book i explain how um when I started the story, I really wanted to get in touch with my um, uh, with my Irish roots, my Celtic roots, and um, so uh, I don't I didn't really know what that meant, other than I thought, well, I'm I'm half Irish and I know very little about Irish mythology, so I really should try and understand uh, the whole background and 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 the culture of Ireland and so forth, and. So really, that's what um, the slain stories have been doing over the years. They've been covering all kinds of aspects of uh, Irish and Celtic mythology. And um, eventually, um, I I kind of worked it all out. And um, that leads on to quite a big subject, which is actually it's to do with my sort of personal ancestry, and once I discovered what that was, um, there was really nowhere left for the for the story to go. And so that's why it ended after 40 years. There, there are other factors as well. Um, I mean, for example, um, I, I think as I get older, I think I actually put more effort into stories and do more research than ever. So it can be quite uneconomic. Uh, doing them under the, um, the the 2000 AD system, where uh, they don't actually pay you to develop um, to de- develop ideas and characters mm-hmm. and themes. And of course, um, as people will know, if you're familiar with uh, with all kinds of mainstream uh, British comics, it, it can lead to repetitive storylines, uh, formula storylines, and so on. Whereas uh, for me, Slane was always looking in new directions, discovering new truths about mythology and magic. And uh, and I really, you know, I, I mean, frankly, I mean, you, you, you know, we're all familiar with uh, British comic book characters that just say the same thing uh, week in, week out. Uh, I, I'm not prepared to do that on Slane. And therefore, if I was to... Um, continue with it I would need to really look very deeply into the character and take it in 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 new directions and that's not something that uh, is supported by the system so that's my second reason for um, for ending the series and thus writing a, a book about well what's it all about yeah exactly um and uh yeah no you you alluded there that you know the the origins of of slain 
are your um are your Celtic roots and kind of your you trying to discover that. Um but what what I'd like to really find out is is how did you decide on the original artist? Right. Okay. Um well the original artist was um um uh, Angela Kincaid, um, uh, there, as then was Angela Mills, it's my ex-wife. Right. And we talked about um, uh, doing a story together for, for ages because uh, um, she's a very successful uh, young children's uh, book illustrator. And I work in comics and therefore it felt like that there should be a bridge uh, between the two. And we started off um, actually um, on, on uh, dinosaurs. And uh, in fact, I, I, I came across only the other day after the book was written um, of one of her uh, dinosaur sketches for um, a series that we've been planning all those years ago called mm-hmm. Dynasty. And nice. of course, as you may know, later on, um, Clint Langley uh, picked up the baton on that and uh, and illustrated it. And she did this rather rather uh, uh, cool image of a, a dinosaur wearing uh, medieval clothes and so on, because that's the whole uh, concept of uh, dynasty is intelligent uh, or semi-intelligent T-Rexes <laughs> and so forth. So you have this sort of female T-Rex who... I, I suppose the nearest uh, sort of visual image that comes to mind would be something like Miss Piggy, you know, it's this kind of malevolent <laughs> looking uh, um, uh, T-Rex wearing a, wearing an Elizabethan frock. Um, but so we kicked that around for a while. And then I think we realized it was too ambitious. And then we did something even more ambitious. Um, Angela really wanted to do something um you know, in the sort of world of nature. And, and we thought, well, maybe maybe there's something in heroic fantasy. And so we um, we sort of tried different ideas. And, uh, you know, this is how I think so many uh, stories are, are created. Before you know it, you're you're just drawn in and there's no, there's no escaping it. And it, the, the whole creative process with Angela was... Um, was very very enjoyable and I, and I still look back on it um, with with great affection that the, the way we um, just the story evolved between the two of us and and make no mistake and I clarify this in the book that uh, um, she was no junior partner in this we, we were very much equals and uh, so she would say well why does it have to be this way so for example um, in episode one, the only episode she drew, um, Slain is smiling. Now, you might say, well, what's so big deal about that? But I tell you, you go back to 2000 AD in that era and no one smiles. No one. <laughs> and um, so there, there were little things and uh, and other things that um, she, she really brought to the table. And... Um, um, her episode was incredibly popular, um, far more popular than the later episodes that followed by uh, Ballardinelli and by um, Mike McMahon, even though 
both those artists are rightly uh, commended in later years. But what was so astonishing about it was it was the only story at that time uh, to beat Judge Dredd in the what were called the sort of voting charts, which still had credibility in those days before what you might call fandom pretty much did away with them and said, well, they don't count and so on. So it was a tremendous achievement for her. And the reason I bang on about it was because of the um, frosty isn't the word. Um, uh, the, the negative reaction from 2008 editorial and from my peers. Um, mm. And I, I think it's like when you're in the middle of things, you don't really pay that much attention to it. And, and often the advice people give you is, oh, just let it go. Don't worry about it. And so I think that's what Angela and I did at the time. And so it's why it comes out in the book. I think it's how, how memoirs work, because it's when people yeah. look back on their life and think, hang on a minute, what was really going on there? And so that's uh, uh, an important piece of Kiss My Axe, the, the story of how all that uh, uh, came together and how she was how she was wronged, really. I mean, there's, there's no other word for it. And yeah. um, uh, as no one else is going to acknowledge it. In other words, it's like, well, why don't you just shut up and forget about it? You know, we've got slain now. So, um, mm. you know, well done and goodbye. That's the attitude in British comics. And it's wrong. Um, uh, If you were to deal, for example, in, in, you know, when you're dealing with, say, French comics where, you know, creator owned and there's far more respect for creators, a situation like this would be unheard of. And um, so, you know, there's a practical reason for speaking out in the book. Um, It's also to raise awareness of what you might call creative respectability. If people are going to create comics, they Mm. need to be treated with respect. And if we highlight when they're not, it means that future generations of creators will perhaps be treated uh, uh, better than than past generations. Let's hope so. And uh, very courageous of you to to do that. Um, Now, when, when did you start writing this book? Well, um, officially, I think uh, Slane's 40th birthday is uh, next year. But actually, it's this year because, um, um, you know, go back 40 years. That's when that's when I started it. And uh, um, and I think it took the whole process from when Andrew and I first started uh, talking about the character to the time it appeared in the comic would have been around a year and a half. So that hence the disparity on uh, on dates, because um, I, I went through endless drafts. And um, and I mean, this this is the thing where. Uh, um, you know, if you if you if you produce something, uh, you know, with your with your partner or, uh, you know, a family member or whatever, the, you're always open to the. Uh, accusation of nepotism so um it was like oh my god i'm gonna have to make this really good i can't just knock this out as so many stories were knocked out uh 
in that era of British comics. And so I went through endless drafts to really get it right. And um, uh, so it was a long process. And of course, that applied equally to the artwork um, because Angela had never drawn a comic strip before. And, you know, it, it can often seem quite daunting to uh, to newcomers and they think, oh, God, how is this done? And I think a lot of energy in comics often comes from what you might call absolute beginners. Um, a lot of talent out there. And I think there is a tendency. Well, there isn't. Uh, there is a more than a tendency. It's, uh, it's I've certainly been aware of it my entire career that once you're in, um, you try and keep other people out. Um, and you may know of this from uh, elsewhere on 2000 AD's history. Mm -hmm. um, I was certainly told that uh, um, Alan Moore's early scripts were kind of kept out or nothing happened with them. And it was only the intervention, I'm told, of Alan Grant that uh, that changed that. Wow. And that's not a one off thing. Uh, you know, people do tend to be kind of kept out. So. I, my own feeling is that there's so there's so much energy out there from newcomers, and I think it's very healthy to bring them in, uh, not least to keep those of us who are established on our toes. So, for example, I was tweeting yesterday. Um, I did a project with some art students at. Um, uh, De Montfort University, where I did a four-page story from a um, uh, character in Spacewalk comic, um, mm -hmm. Futons. And I, one guy um, whose first name is Bogomil, and his um, uh, he's rendering of this four-page story, um, as far as I can see, he's never drawn a, a comic strip before, but suddenly he's come from nowhere and I'm looking at this and thinking, it's clear from a writer's point of view, it's brilliant mm. because he's put the story first and, and the art to a degree second, um, which mm. means he probably won't develop a fan following immediately because <laughs> if, if you put the writer first, you know, all too often fans say, ah, yeah, I love that artwork. Didn't really know what was going on. <laughs> you know, yeah, what the but it, it looks really cool. Uh, that, um, uh, at, at the risk of sounding rather divisive, is a real flaw of um, uh, the, the, the comic scene in the UK. If you look at a lot of uh, girls comic artists, and bear in mind girls comics were at one time um, twice as popular as boys comics, but mm. they, they put the story first. And so you read the story, you think, hey, that's a really good script, which is great for us writers, right? Yeah. But you look at a, often, uh, you know, uh, a science fiction story in 2000 AD, you say, wow, I love that art. I had no idea what was going on. But <laughs> it was so cool. And so I, I've really commended this guy in, in, in Twitter at the moment. And, uh, um, you know, if if I was set up to give him more work, I would be doing so like a shot because I I can tell from looking at his gift for storytelling um, that he he's really going to go places. And uh, yeah, just to kind of back that up a little bit, um, consider Dave Gibbons. 
Now, not only is he a great artist who people say, hey, that's really cool, but he's also a brilliant storyteller. And um, there aren't that many of them on, uh, around, you know? I mean, there are obviously others, and they're, mm-hmm. they tend to be the ones I work with, like Kevin O'Neill, for example. It's a great storyteller. Um, but um, not all good comic artists are, are good storytellers. So it's so valuable for us as writers because ideas that um, may be subtle or complex, a good storyteller is really going to put that on the page. Exactly. Um, amazing. Yeah, it's it's such a complex uh, relationship, isn't it? Collaborating between mm. writers and, and, and artists. And uh, when, when you do get that, um, that perfect collaboration of an artist that can really help focus on the story, also create amazing art, um, then, you know, that's, I guess those are the ones that stick. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I, I like think that's the case. Yeah. I mean, Dave Gibbons is surely uh, an icon in that respect because, yeah, his artwork is exciting to look at, but he also tells the story and some yeah. very ambitious storytelling. I mean, you imagine, say, uh, Watchmen being drawn by someone else. Uh, hmm. It's hard to imagine, uh, and it's hard to imagine it being as successful because, you know, Dave just brought everything out. Um, of course, I'd have to say uh, David Lloyd, another another great storyteller. Um but uh, it makes it sound like there's lots of them out there. Because I can't say the ones who are lousy storytellers. That really wouldn't be fair, you know. We all know who they are. <laughs> fair play. Um, now, how, so looking back at these 40 years must have been rather difficult. And so how how long did it take to write Kiss My Axe? Um, well, the, the, the last part was... was um, Pretty straightforward. It was that early era um, uh, involving uh, Angela's um, uh, role that took longest because um, I I did a sort of first draft of it. And uh, and then I thought, no, I don't know. I'm I'm not I'm, I'm kind of pulling my punches here a bit. So then I did a second draft. (laughs) And. and so I showed it to uh, uh, to Lisa, my wife, and, uh, and she said, "You're holding back a bit here, you know." <laughs> so I thought, oh, "Okay." Uh, she said, "No, no, no. What, what are you What are you getting at here? Why don't you spell it out?" And uh, so then I did a third draft, and uh, wow. and what I what I realised was that I blocked out most of what was going on. And um, it was obvious that there was a deliberate attempt um, to freeze her out of the picture. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was vaguely aware of it. But Andrew and I had so many other things going on in our lives that we we did, I think, what was the sort of sensible thing to do, really. When you've got yeah. a lot going on, you just say, oh, to hell with it and, and just get on with those other things. So it's, as I step back that I realized just um, how calculated the attempt to freeze her out was. And I also realized how bloody angry it was making me, which was quite a strange feeling because we're talking about, you know, a lifetime ago. And suddenly I'm thinking, 
Well, obviously, the anger is ultimately directed at myself because I should have um, I, I should really have uh, spoken up even more than I think I did. Uh, mm. I certainly speak up these days on just about mm. anything. But I think at that time, I, I, I don't think I was as um, as protective of her as I should have been. Mm. And um, so it was really, uh, really stirring the pot of memory. And, and I believe this is a fairly common thing for people who, you know, writing their autobiographies and so on. Um, so by the time I got to the third or fourth draft, I thought, you know what, I think I need to take a break from this. You know, mm-hmm. it, you see what is happening. It's, it's almost like pushing it away again. So I, I pushed it away for some, um, I don't know, um, a year or so. Um, I think the first bit went up online and I kind of left it at that. We commissioned a cover and everything. Um, the cover, which uh, ultimately um, is the one we've used. And uh, I thought, no, I've got to take a break from this just to see, um, you know, how objective I am being about this and, and whether it matters. And uh, so when I came back and I wrote whatever it was, the fifth draft of, uh, of those early chapters, um, I think, um, yeah, it, it still held up. And um, I, I think I would say that if you feel strongly about anything, um, it's unlikely that after a year's break or whatever, uh, that that's going to change. You might be a little bit calmer about it, um, mm. but your 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 feelings are valid. And uh, and I, I was just so dismayed at uh, how she was frozen out, and and I think also because. Um, I think there's always an assumption, well, you know, Slane's a very successful series. It's, it's had all these wonderful artists on it. But I would say it could have been um, even more powerful and certainly more personal. The, the best example I can think of would be, say, Charlie's War uh, mm-hmm. with Joe Cahoon. Now, you could imagine under some other circumstances, perhaps, that other artists might have uh, uh, drawn this series uh, with me writing it, and people might have said, "Oh, that was." Let, let's make some up. Let's, let's say Dave Gibbons had drawn some episodes, and people say, "Hey, that was." I love that era of of Charlie's War where Dave was drawing it, or mm. Kevin O'Neill was drawing it, and you know there there would be all that kind of you know very friendly competition on the thing. Uh, you know, this is my favourite Charlie's War artist, etc. But that never happened on Charlie's War. Instead, it was drawn all the time by this wonderful artist, Joe Cahoon. And I, I think uh, if Angela had carried on with Slane, um, she probably couldn't have done it all on her own because um, uh, she was quite slow. And, and there was so much pressure on her as well, which obviously made her even slower. But I think it could have had more of that personal feeling that uh, comes through with uh, Joe Cahoon and Charlie's War. Um, and, and I'm pretty certain that she would have said to me, um, yeah, why don't we do this? Or in other words, we, we would have got a, um, uh, something comparable to, um, shall we say, martial law uh, with Kevin O'Neill, where you can feel Kevin's influence is just 
pouring across the page. Uh, and I, I think the same would have been true on Slain. So although it's been a very successful series, um, possibly the most successful uh, 2080 series, if, if you consider it in European terms, because to the best of my knowledge, I think uh, um, Slain, well, Slain certainly started the the appearance of 2000 AD stories in Europe and uh, with the possible exception of Judge Dredd, um, I think it's the one that's uh, paramount to this day. Um, so, you know, there, there, there's always that feeling of what might have been. And, and I think there's a sense of loss there. Um, and... Um, so all that is bound up in, in the character of Slane. I mean, on, on the surface, he's this uh, rather boisterous, um, could be described as a kind of Celtic thug. Uh, um, yeah. But there's a, there's, a, there's a lot bubbling away beneath the surface. And I, th- I think you've, you've got an idea just now of some of what went into that character. Um, I'm not sure that all my characters have got that kind of, personal investment um mm. but yeah he probably slain more than more than any other i i guess yeah well i mean you know lightning is very difficult to capture in a bottle really. mm. and obviously <laughs> slain is, is one of those where you have captured lightning in a bottle um and and being able to do that you know repeatedly is a stretch isn't it <laughs> Maybe. yeah it's it's t- well i think it's also um it went through phases of where we had some really great artists and the expectation was always, uh, right, the next artist has to be at least as good or even better. And arguably on occasion that that was so, but it, it was quite a roller coaster, as everyone knows, because you had, you know, there was the early, uh, what should we say, challenging era between the Ballardinelli slain and the uh, Mike McMahon slain and mm. what you might call the misreporting of the reality of those days. Then you have the um, Glenn Fabry and David Pugh era uh, and, um, and, you know, Glenn took the the character to another level um and then just as we're kind of we're sort of basking in the sunshine of that thinking hey we really cracked it you know along comes simon bisley and takes yeah, it right. to another <laughs> level um and then following that of course you have other artists who i would argue uh are, are every bit as 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 powerful as uh, as Simon's Horn God, but uh, and Dermot Power, for example. Um, but I think it's almost like the re- the readers were so transfixed by the Horn God that anything that followed. I mean, it's a bit like James Bond. You, you, if you're into Sean Connery, and along comes Roger Moore. Um, <laughs> it doesn't matter how good his performance is. Um, uh, there are there are people out there, and I'd include myself, who say I don't care. It's not Sean Connery. You know? It doesn't cut it. <laughs> and, and so on with the with the with the later James Bond. So I I mean that was 
I think that was really tough on a lot of artists. It was certainly tough on me as a writer. Yeah. And, um, and, and some of it wouldn't, some of it really wouldn't matter. You know what I mean? If you, if it is just that, you know, I, I'm referring to James Bond in a very lighthearted way. Now, if that were true for the way things rolled out with the different slain artists, that would be fine. But sometimes it got pretty mean. You know what I mean? In other words, mm-hmm. uh, maybe not, not so much from the reader's point of view, because I think by and large they were pretty tolerant, although what they really wanted was just more Simon Bisley, you know, <laughs> for a while. But I, I think that time... Uh, we moved on from there. And I think Clint Langley's uh, depiction of Slane had a lot to do with that. But then when artists um, went wrong or appeared to go wrong for whatever reason, um, that um, that got quite mean-spirited. You know, uh, the, the editorial were, uh, what shall I say, um, you know, you're dealing with people's lives and careers and, you know, paying the weekly bills and, and to to vilify. Um, Being pretty ruthless. Uh, I'm thinking of one very good uh, uh, slain artist in particular was really unjust, was really unjust. And uh, I, I liken it in the book to, um, uh, was it Gerald Ratner? Um, the the uh, the jeweler who who's I don't know if you know the story. He's uh, off the top well, of my head, no. Most of our most of our uh, I don't know what was he. Most of our most of our materials are what were they bracelets, watches? I don't know. He said most of them are crap or something like that. Yeah. And shares crashed on, on Ratners overnight. Well, something similar was going on in the pages of 2000 AD, where editorial were publishing. Uh, negative letters about this particular artist and so it's like they're, they're actually saying to the um uh to the reader don't read this story it's crap <laughs> and you're thinking <laughs> this is this is a gerald ratner moment how is this possible yeah and uh, so when i was writing the later chapters of uh kiss my axe uh, i really spent some time uh really trying to reverse that because um, you know, the, the story and art was very consistent with with previous ones. I mean, there'll always be individual episodes where you'll say, well, that wasn't so good. Um, but I think by and large, readers are quite tolerant or maybe they make an exception with Slane and aren't as tolerant uh, because I, I think they know. And certainly I think I've done my best to make people aware of this, that if you're selling all rights and, you know, the money you're paid is not that great, then you are going to have some dips in the quality from time to time. That is an unfortunate nettle that we have to grasp with uh, with British comics is that you're I mean, British comic artists and British comic creators generally, I think, are, are at least as talented as anywhere else in the world. But they're not getting the financial returns. So they've got to feed their, um, you know, feed their families. They've got to pay their mortgages and, and all the rest of it. So you, you do get these dips in quality sometimes. And if you look at some of the um, 
uh, golden age uh, 2000 AD stories. They were often produced by um, artists when they were, say, young, single, or just just foolish. Uh, And in more recent years, you can sometimes, uh, you know, you're aware that, you know, you get what you pay for. Uh, And I actually, I think I can't subscribe to it because there's something within me that says the story has to be absolutely spot on. And we don't care about your mortgage. But uh, um, I, I have respect for, for creators who say, well, look, I'm only being paid this much. So this is what you get in return. I'm not going to subsidize uh, a wealthy publishing company, um, uh, you know, at my own expense. And, and all these things have always bubbled under the surface of, of 2080 in particular, and I think it's useful to just um, give them a bit of airtime for people to be aware of that. And I think I think fans and readers are now and, and perhaps accept, um, you know, there are sometimes dips in quality, um, although they don't accept where Slane is concerned generally. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If they, and, and so that was another reason for ending it. I thought, Christ. We've got it right here, you know, uh, with, with this wonderful artist, Leah Manko. Um, maybe I should go out while I'm winning. <laughs> you know what I mean? In other words, because yeah, yeah. uh, there's nothing worse, is there, when a story or a, uh, or a film franchise, you know, carries on to the, uh, you know, Friday the 13th, part 12 or something. You know, <laughs> it, it's better to go out on a high point, I think. And... Um, um, and so that's what I did. Fantastic, and good, and good for you for doing that, Pat. Um, you know, you you you're truly invested in in the character and the and the story. Um, and uh, yeah, I did. From um, a reader's perspective, it's it's probably the right thing to do. I think so. So good on you. Yeah, I, I think it's nice to do it that way, and. Um, I mean, I, I still miss him, and I, I might be tempted to do uh, uh, Matt Smith on 2000 has said, would I like to do a one-off uh, Slane story for a special he's got planned in a year or so? And I yeah. might be tempted back for that. But a one-off story is is a very different thing to saying, mm-hmm. right, where are we going on this character? Uh, yeah, and um, that involves a bit of a long, dark night of the soul where you really think <laughs> character through and uh so anyway um just to sort of uh just to add a footnote to the whole kiss my axe thing um it, it was it was very um i think it was valuable to to do because it pays tribute to all those fantastic artists who put so much of themselves into the uh into the stories and um yeah and, and and not just the artists. There's also a lot of um, there's a lot of real real life magic. Sounds a bit um, glib, but there mm. there is some real life magic there. I mean, most of these stories are based on concepts of magic um, that hold up reasonably well. You know, whether you're talking about um, say. Uh, reincarnation for example there, there, there's a lot of stuff on reincarnation and um 
as far as I know, that's that's usually a bit of a taboo subject in um, in fiction. I, I mean, there must be some stories about it, but uh, um, I really wanted to explore all the ins and outs of it. And um, I don't know. I, I hopefully that will inspire other people to to look at some of these real life uh, magic uh, subjects. Fantastic. Uh, now, talking about uh, inspiring others, um, I think you've you've probably been an inspiration for <clears throat> for hundreds, if not thousands, of of fellow comic creators. Um, and uh, I was wondering um, what what recent reads um, have have you been reading and been inspiring you? Um, right. Well, I was I was looking down at uh, things. Uh, in recent times and uh, well let's see um, Chartwell Manor uh, from Fantagraphics uh, mm. is one and it's a heavy read it's a graphic novel yeah. uh, about this uh, author who um, uh, went to this uh, abusive school and as a result uh, in following years his life went downhill and um uh, it's it, it takes no prisoners and it's very very well done um i mean it's a heavy subject um but i i was just so impressed by it and i think it i think what was what interested me about chartwell manor in particular um it's, it's a very nice production as you can imagine from fantagraphics mm-hmm. um was it shows this other thing that we can do with comics, which is that we can do documentaries. Um, in other words, we, we can tell um, real life stories. Uh, and there's a there's a long tradition of this in comics. Uh, American comics, I have to say, um, we're not really that aware of uh, British ones covering the same territory uh, as powerfully. But um, Last Gasp comics, I believe, um, were the first to break the um, uh, the Silkwood affair, uh, which was made into a, a movie, I think, called Silkwood, um, mm. about a uh, nuclear um, uh, disaster at a, at a power station. And I think um, it's great when comics can do these things because um, I think television often falls short, especially in these days, because people don't... Uh, watch television in a way that they once did. Um, so it tends to be social media where people pick up a lot of their um, ideas and uh, information from, from websites and so forth. So uh, that's one reason I particularly like Chartwell Manor, because I thought, well, it's a, it's a documentary. It's, it's saying something about this terrible, evil school. Um, and um, I, I hope it would be a trailblazer for... Um, for other documentaries about other subjects, because the, the comic book form is so good to do this with. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know, I think we're I think we're still struggling with it a bit, you know. Uh, um, so if you think back to, say, Mouse, where they use that very powerful um, uh, visual symbolism of the cats and mice in concentration camps. And um, so that, that that's one example where they try to get over the, um, what would, could otherwise be visually very relentlessly awful um, e- events, you know, described in um, in comic book form. 
Now, Chartwell Manor doesn't use any any visual devices like that. It just tells it like it is. And I think it works. Um, so I'd like to see more. So Chartwell Manor is certainly one of my um, uh, recent uh, books that I've uh, uh, read. And um, uh, let me see. What's another one that I should mention? Um, Assassination Classroom. Um, now, I, 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 this would be one that I would have on my um, uh, reading list uh, after an apocalypse. Um, <laughs> I'm aware of the, these uh, in a bookshop fairly near us. There's a whole series of uh, kind of graphic novels uh, on Assassination Classroom. And um, along with other manga um, titles, and I really want to catch up with these a bit to see, to look at the format, the price and the fact that they're um, appealing to teenagers. I think um, in the case of Assassination Classroom, possibly more teenage girls rather than teenage boys. But I really like that um, that kind of uh, fantasy school genre. You know, I mean, Harry Potter was by no means the the first to to really uh, get into that whole concept of fantasy boarding schools and mm. assassination classroom is is another uh, example in the genre. So for me, it's really to study it and see what how, how does this work? Why is this so successful with its readers? And uh, how can I press similar buttons? Um, I'm thinking particularly. In the case of uh, Spacewalk comic, where I have this series, uh, Futant, uh, Future Mutant, um, mm. where all these um, uh, these kids are, are futants. In other words, they're uh, they all have different powers, but they're not superhero powers in the traditional sense. Uh, they're, they're often um, uh, they're, they're often kind of uh, weirder powers of synchronicity or alchemy or Things like that. Um, so I, I was I think I'm a bit of a sucker for that kind of fantasy boarding school story. So yeah. that's the second one that appeals to me. Great. Yeah, no, it's, 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 a, it's a fun um, subject to delve into and you can do it in a multitude of ways, um, as evident from the differences between Harry Potter and Assassination Classroom. Um, yeah. Maybe there could be a crossover somewhere. I don't know, but <laughs> oh, it, it's such a rich genre, and and really, when you consider that uh, boarding schools, uh, the reality of them is pretty awful, yeah. and and yet we're all we're all fascinated to read these uh, the or, or watch these these stories about uh, fantasy boarding schools. When the reality, of course, is is quite close, actually, to Chartwell Manor. I mean, Chartwell Manor is a classic boarding school. Uh, <laughs> nobody in their right mind would, would have yeah. wanted to have gone to it. It's, it's a place of absolute darkness and horror. Um, and that's just just reminded me that um, a third story that I really need to revisit. It's a story I edited when I was um, when I worked on Tammy. So this is a long, long time ago, probably about 1975. And uh, uh, whenever I'm talking about girls' comics, I always rave about this particular story. Um, 
And uh, I, I think the reason will resonate with uh, uh, British listeners in particular. Uh, it's called Ella on Easy Street. And um, it was devised by Jerry Finley Day, um, the uh, co-creator of Road Trooper and, um, and various other 2008 serials. And uh, he was the editor of uh, Tammy at the time. And he came up with this idea and he gave it to um, a radio uh, writer called Charles Herring. And it was beautifully illustrated by an artist called Casanovas, um, who I think, you know, his artwork will be apparent on, um, will be out there on Google Images. Anyway, um, the, the, the premise of uh, Ella on Easy Street is wonderful. Normally in comics and indeed in YA fiction and so on, the story is always about the um, uh, the protagonist getting on in life. In other words, I've got to become a ballerina or uh, uh, I've got to win a gymkhana, um, whatever it is. And uh, Ella is the complete opposite. Her family are upwardly mobile, uh, but she recognizes that her family are happy as they are and if her dad is endlessly working overtime and if her mum is going to night school or whatever she fears that the family uh, will be disrupted and she herself is bright uh, but she feels uh, what should we say more comfortable in the b stream rather than in the a stream these these wretched terms they used uh back in back in that era mm. and so it's it's a very um it's a very challenging story it really upends everything that we um that we normally take for granted so and of course the name ella comes from cinderella uh because the majority of these kind of stories are ultimately based on cinderella in other words you have the protagonist who's uh, uh, put down by cruel stepfathers or whatever, and they they try to rise above the um, uh, you know the misery of their existence and, and make something of themselves. And here is Ella, a kind of reverse Cinderella, doing the exact opposite. And as far as I know, the the only other story that um, uh, presses a similar button. It is a great British movie from the 1960s uh, um, called The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. And it's a fantastic movie, absolutely fantastic, because the the hero um, who, who's at some young offenders uh, sort of borsal or something, um, he he's a great runner and he deliberately throws a race because he recognizes it's all pointless. And I think I think something like that, particularly in in, in today's era where, where you know people are endlessly told, hey, you've got to get on, you've got to go to university, you've got to get this qualification and that qualification. Um, I think it's useful to have challenges to that point of view uh, and to show that there are other ways that you can succeed other than with, with bits of paper. Um, and so Ella on Easy Street and the loneliness of the long distance runner, I think, are pressing that same important button. Um, and there will be readers who will identify 
with with what Ella um, was going through. And so it was a very brave story uh, to do. And I, and I think apart from the excellent writing by Charles Herring, um, it, it's primarily down to the editor, Jerry Finley Day, who could really think out of the box like that. Um, it's a very British way of looking at things. I mean, you imagine, <laughs> could you imagine a, an American comic book company or an American film uh, company um, wanting to do The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner? They, they go, what? He loses? <laughs> you know? yeah. um, Why? <laughs> yeah, it, it's like, uh, hey, that doesn't fit. And yet, if you if you go back to movies of the um, um, certainly of the 70s, they were challenging all these ideas that, you know, the story is always upwardly mobile and so on. And um, I mean, there's still a few out there somewhere, I think. But um, I, I think it's valuable to, to challenge um, the traditional narrative. Always, always, um, always worthy to, to uh, <laughs> yeah, um, challenge, challenge the usual narrative. Um, and uh, yeah, you mentioned before that um, yeah, you'd like to pick that up again. Uh, what's uh, what Ella on Easy Street? Yeah. yeah oh well, yeah. I um, well, I, I keep um, uh, banging the drum for it, and and I know um, uh, several girls' comic serials from the past have been reprinted by Rebellion. Uh, there's a story of mine called um, uh, Concrete Surfer, uh, which is out in. Uh, what we would call graphic novel form. Um, and um, it's a very nice production. I mean, they've done a really good job on it. And uh, that's about a female skateboarder. And uh, um, hence the term concrete surfer. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, I, I, I found that really interesting to pursue. <clears throat> and um uh, I, I think there are one or two other girls uh, serials out there published by Rebellion. Um, but I think and of course, Misty has got a certain uh, cult following um, as well. But I, I still miss that era um, of girls comics. And, and, and I think um, I mean, when I started out, I was primarily a girls comic writer. Uh, which is why my, my stories tend to focus um, a lot on character and emotion, um, which isn't always the case uh, with male comics. They're, um, uh, that's often not as important. Um, it can often be mood, style, um, a vehicle for the artists and so on. Um, so I, I, I do miss those... Um, those girls comic days and i guess uh, i guess ella on easy street is um is a prime example of that fantastic and uh, that was it was there anything else that you've been uh, reading recently or well, revisiting? Um, well <laughs> a story that i need to go back to um is slain the horn god actually um Great. because one of the things i was particularly proud of on uh, on uh, uh slain i mean is that he's a non-elitist uh, character. In other words, well, he, he's not a working class hero, uh, but he's certainly non-elite. And um, uh, there, there was a very brisk discussion uh, that I had with uh, with one um, 
um, uh, Irish uh, follower on on Twitter, uh, who was obviously very well informed about uh, Celtic mythology, and he um, he kept insisting that uh, um, Slain was actually an aristocrat and from an aristocratic uh, background, and that warriors were always aristocratic, and so on. Now, how true that is, is open to debate, and none of us will ever know. <laughs> we weren't there. So, you know, all we've got are there, uh, you, you know, other other sort of few, um, you know, mythological narratives from that era, and so on. But uh, um, the, to me, the idea that Slain was in any way a, a, an aristocrat, I a red rag to a ball, frankly. It's like, really? No, no. <laughs> and so I, I really need to um, um, reacquaint myself with the horn god where he is in an aristocratic environment. In other words, he becomes the high king of uh, the king of kings uh, to just to see whether there's any justification in what I see as a, a rather injurious allegation that my hero... Uh, should be an aristocrat because you probably gathered, uh, uh, you know, I, I find any kind of elitist heroes uh, absolute anathema to me. Um, yeah. So I, I really need to read that just to reassure myself. Where's Definitely. he getting this idea from? You, you, you could clarify it in that one-off special next year. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe, fact, maybe. Maybe I will, actually. I think I might have to. I, I actually felt quite affronted by it. And, and yeah. I know what he's talking about, because um, but th- th- there's there's a world of difference between today's aristocratic society and what is described as a Celtic aristocratic society. Um, right. Yeah. And I'm not sure that the two overlap each other uh, particularly. I mean, Thus, you have um, a blacksmith in uh, the Cuchulain uh, saga um, who is, is clearly a, a leader of the community. Well, you know, there's no there's no blacksmiths in the royal family. You know what I mean? <laughs> so so to, to sort of put them up side by side is and in any event, I mean, what what Slane stands for in particular is he stands for a, a non elitist perspective. So even when he's king, he's challenging all the traditional rules of 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 uh, elitism and so forth and um i think on occasion actually taking the piss out of them and uh um so i but i i really need to just go back and look at the horn god and think okay um uh you know is there is there still any stain of aristocracy on my hero uh because um I, I think uh, I think although the horn god works very well because it it challenges um, elitism, usually in the form of um, uh, you know the worshiping a male deity and and he's referring to the goddess, which is a uh, uh, kind of goes against all those ideas of patriarchy and dominance and so forth, which uh, are, are the hallmarks of um, uh, of elitism um but anyway I, I need to i need to do double check on it all <laughs> yeah i think, I think fact, as you say there's, there's probably a story in there uh addressing those very issues well that would be fantastic pat and uh, i hope that comes to fruition um and uh, yeah, no, th- th- it's been glorious catching up and 
um, finding finding out more about um, the, the history of Slain um, through uh, through Kiss My Axe, um, which is available now. Um, and when this goes live, um, the actual um, publication date is the 27th. That's correct, isn't it? Yeah, but, uh, I should actually clarify a little bit there. Let me see. As we speak, um, it's available on Amazon, both yeah. as a paperback and as Kindle. Um, it's available um, from Get My Comics um, from, I think, the 27th or the 28th. Yes. Yeah. Now, um, there's two versions available um, from Get My Comics. Uh, one is a straightforward version and another one is is one where there's an insert um, with a, uh, which I've signed. So there's this kind of special signed edition. Yeah. Um, and as we speak, the 27th or the 28th still seems more or less OK, but we are at the mercy of the printers. And over the last few days, yeah. uh Get my comics and and uh, and Lisa, who's also uh, the publisher, been um, you know frantically going backwards and forwards, uh, seeing whether they can um, get the um, uh, the printer to confirm that everything is okay and is on time. But as you can imagine, especially in this day and age, you know with the sort yeah. of COVID thing that. Uh, uh, Dates uh, are not as firm as we would like them to be. So I, I'm, no. I'm bracing myself for a little bit of disappointment there. Um, right, there might if, be a slight delay. If do not go according to plan, we will, we will let readers know as soon as possible. Yeah. Unfortunately, even, in, even you know, when you're dealing with Marvel and DC, I mean, they have you know, problems yeah. printing. We're, we're all at the mercy of this third force. So yeah. there you go. Exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, no, all of the links to, to where you can buy them, particularly the signed edition on Get My Comics are in the show notes, folks. So uh, you can at least pre-order it. If not, um, fingers crossed the printers come through and, you, and you'll be able to receive a copy straight away. Um, but uh, again, Pat, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure um, and you're always welcome back on the show. Thanks so much, Sam. That was great fun. Absolutely great fun. And uh, thanks again. Cheers, man. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to Pat for being on Comics for the Apocalypse. It was an absolute pleasure. If you did enjoy the show, please leave a review for us on iTunes or whichever podcast service you use. And it was not only well, let me know that you liked it, but believe that it helps make other people aware of the show as well. And if you'd like to check out Pat's work or follow him on social media, those links are in the show notes along with all our own links to the various areas of the internet. Speaking of which, if you haven't already, be sure to visit Comic Scene's websites at comicscene.org for comic news, the comic club, and lots of other fun sequential art stuff. And finally, as long as the apocalypse doesn't come to pass in the next week, I'll see you next Monday. Bye for now.